Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways that the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Today, I will be speaking with notable attorney Jeffrey Bass on the relationship between zoning and urban design. The conversation will explore the historical evolution of zoning, unveiling its hidden influence on the physical and social fabric of our communities. We will delve into the ways that regulatory frameworks wield the power to shape cities and landscapes, foster community cohesion, and dictate the interplay between public and private space. Through this discussion, we will navigate the ongoing debate between creativity and control in the design of the built environment. But before we begin this conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Jeffrey Bass is a founding member of the award-winning firm of Shubin Bass in Miami, Florida. He represents municipal and county governments, universities, businesses, and individuals in all manner of conflicts, including the use and development of real property, property rights, entitlements, constitutional law, zoning disputes, and historic preservation cases, just to name a few. In 2021, Best Lawyers recognized Jeff as one of the best lawyers in America, as well as the Lawyer of the Year in Florida and the best lawyer in land use and zoning for the Miami metro area. That same year, the Wall Street Journal named Jeff South Florida Lawyer of the Year, which is selected by peer recognition. In addition to Jeff's many individual awards, the firm of Shubin Bass has also been consistently recognized as a best law firm by the U.S. News and World Reports in land use and zoning law, as well as in commercial litigation. Despite his demanding practice, Jeff recently pioneered a course on the regulation uh, of design, which he teaches at the University of Miami School of Architecture and the Master's in Real Estate Development Program. He also lectures throughout the state of Florida on land use and litigation issues. Jeff, welcome to On Cities. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this is this is a real treat. I, I have to say, having listened to the podcast, I feel galactically unqualified to be here, uh, but grateful nonetheless. Oh, you are definitely not that. Um, and I look forward to what I know will be a great conversation. Jeff, as with many of my guests, I always like to know where you grew up and how you think this context may have shaped your views about city. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I, I grew up in a town called Roslyn, Long Island. It is uh, a beautiful little suburb, approximately 18 miles east of Manhattan, uh, not far from where, where your guest, Deborah Burke, grew up in Queens. Um, it was a place where most people's parents commuted to the city. Um, my mom and dad met uh, on the subway uh, while both attending NYU, and like so many of their then peers, wished to raise their family in the suburbs. And, and Roslyn was about as perfect as it could get. Um, we had nice, modest ranch 
style homes on relatively small lots, um, something that I did not know at the time, um, generated a great sense of connectivity to your neighbors and uh, promoted the use of the public realm, i.e. streets, uh, for playing uh, street hockey and frisbee and touch football uh, and wiffle ball with all the kids in the block that you could rustle up, something which doesn't happen uh, in neighborhoods that have bigger lots uh, with houses further removed from one another. But growing up within the gravitational pull of New York City um, exerted this uh, force on all of us, uh, particularly in the 80s, where New York was known for not checking the ID of those attending its uh, bars and clubs. So it was always a special place to go growing up on Long Island, uh, to go to Manhattan. Um, and uh, I, I think that that had a real unconscious impact on me. And I say unconscious because it was always there. And like things that are always there, you tend to take them for granted. Um, from there, I went to school at Duke University in North Carolina. And as much as I love Duke, and those were some of the most beautiful years of my life for which I remain grateful, I just felt off and out of sorts in North Carolina. And I, and I, and I really didn't know why. Um, and as, as we were coming to the end of Duke and people were talking about where, where they were going to, there was this great desire to go back to cities. And what I realized not being in a city is how much I miss the energy of a city. But you take that energy for granted when you spend your entire life immersed in it. Um, so it, it was at that time that I, that I developed this interest in how and why I feel the way I do when I'm in a great city and how and why I miss that when I'm not. Mm. And, and so just to embroider that a little bit, growing up in an environment that was fully fully built out, the notion that you could build and shape a city was a very foreign concept for me because there was no land left to develop and everything had been developed for generations. And the opportunity to see in Durham, North Carolina, and then the move to Miami, a developing city, a city where decisions would have palpable impact on my life and the life of those around me w was very energizing. And, and I think that's what cultivated the interest in the fields of study that, that you discuss on this show. Yeah, and that I look forward to being able to delve into with you. Um, Jeff, thank you for that. Um, I think it's important you have a varied kind of relationship with cities, right? Having grown up in a, in a suburb near to a major metropolis and then growing up in the almost kind of the bucolic landscape of Duke, um, but then coming to Miami and playing a pivotal role as a leading lawyer in the city and helping uh, designers, communities shape the environment, I think gives you a really broad and rich perspective. So, but before we get into the question of your work as a, as a lawyer, in researching your life and work for this conversation, I learned that you were awarded a Carnegie Medal for Outstanding Act of Heroism. This is an extraordinary honor. And so Jeff, could you tell us about this award and how you earned this honor? Sure, um, I'll do my best. Uh, it's it's not always easy for me to talk about it, but uh, but I'll I'll do my best to answer both parts of your question. And if I fail on either, uh, please give me a follow up opportunity to make sure that that I answered it completely. 
So Pittsburgh steelmaker Andrew Carnegie is a name that we all recognize. Um, he created a body called the Carnegie Hero Commission, and he did so in response to the horrific collapse of a mine, uh, the Harwick Mine, um, which collapsed on January 25th, 1904, uh, now known as the Harwick Mine Disaster. 179 lives were lost um, in the explosion. All of the miners were killed, all of them except for one, um, a 16-year-old named uh, Adam Guinea, Adolf Guinea, the only survivor. Two men not far from the explosion heard it. Selwyn Taylor and Daniel Lee were their names. They dropped what they were doing. They ran to the explosion. They ran into the mine to see what they could do to save those miners who were entombed within it. Both heroically entered that mine not knowing what they would find, and both died of asphyxiation um, during the rescue. Um, it, in, in response to that, Andrew Carnegie funded what he called the Carnegie Hero Commission, which is a commission that he, he, he set in trust to recognize the efforts of everyday people. And importantly, and these are his words, to recognize deeds of heroism where men or women are injured or lose their lives attempting to preserve or rescue their fellows. Because according to Carnegie, those were the heroes of our civilization. Um, so he created the Carnegie Hero Commission uh, to recognize those who undertake these dangerous rescue missions um, to make sure that there would be funds available for the, the rescuers and their families. Um, I'm quite sad to say 20% of the medals are awarded to people who die during, during the rescue. Um, and, and so the, the standard for, for the medal is you must risk death or serious injury to an extraordinary degree while saving or attempting to save the life of a person. And, and the award focuses, I'd like to emphasize, on civilians um, who seek to rescue a stranger um, and are under no, legal to do, un, under no legal duty to do so. So the award is not given to firefighters or paramedics or police, but, but I'd like to emphasize they're no less heroes. These are everyday heroes who risk their lives. This award just focuses on everyday people not in the business of rescuing uh, anybody to recognize that because Carnegie believed that to be so important um, for the survival of, of, of the goodness in our civilization. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the history of the award. And, you know, Carrie, you and I know each other um, very, very well. Um, risk taker is, is not a phrase people would use when describing me. Um, as you can see, I'm wearing sunscreen during this interview because... <laughs> Uh, I like to be prepared um, uh, and, and avoid risks. And, and what I've learned um, is that there are forces in the universe that conspire to put you where you need to be, with whom you need to be, and when you need to be there. The problem is these forces don't provide advance notice. They don't ask for your consent and they present really big decisions that have to be made instantly and without hesitation to think them through. 
um, which for somebody in my business uh, and yours are the worst types of decisions, right? We like to study and assess and calculate. unsettling, yes. Entirely Entirely unsettling. So you don't get the memo, uh, you don't get much notice, and you really don't get to draw the ledger of pros and cons. So it was on a on a on a beautiful September morning when I I hired a fishing guide um, named James Koch, uh, Captain James Koch, a great guide and a and a gem of a human being, um, to go fly fishing in the waters of Key Largo for this very tricky fish called a permit. Um, if there are any golfers listening, you know, catching a permit is like shooting par, uh, particularly when you do it on a fly. It it, it almost never happens. We were in a Kevlar flat skiff. So that's a tiny little boat about 16 feet long, weighs a total of 400 pounds. It is super light um, and designed to to allow you to fish in very skinny water, maybe five or six inches of water. You can really try to sneak up on these fish and fool them. Uh, So we went out uh, fishing and in the horizon, uh, we, we noticed a highly erratic motion to the north. Weren't quite sure what it was. It just didn't look natural. Um, And as we got closer, we saw that it was a boat. And this boat was driving erratically in a circle uh, growing up uh, in the north. It it was like doing donuts in the parking lot in the snow in a car. It was, it was clearly moving in a circular motion, but the circles were not uniform and predictable. And when we got closer, we saw that there was nobody in the boat. Um, so we, we stopped for a look, and it was at that moment that we saw bodies in the water. Um, there was one body holding, there was, there was one person clearly alive. They were holding on to what we call a channel marker, um, and the boat on certain passes, hit the channel marker. Um, but then there was one body underwater, face down, spread eagle, about six inches beneath the surface in this area we call Angelfish Creek, which is uh, a very sharky body of water in Upper Key Largo that has a tremendous current. Um, and this body was under the water and sinking. Um, but the problem was he was in the middle of the circle that the unmanned boat was driving. Um, and I looked at Captain James and I said, I got to get him. Um, this boat was considerably bigger than our boat. And Captain James looked at me and said, if that boat hits us, we're dead. Um, and I said, well, then it's not going to hit us, James. Uh, James said, well, your safety is my priority. And I said, that's great because his safety is my priority. So here's what we're going to do. You don't take your eyes off of that boat. If it gets anywhere near us, you get us to safety. I'm not taking my eyes off of this body. You get me as close to him as you possibly can. And I'm going to grab him. And when I grab them, then depending on where the boat is, we're either going to go forward or backwards, but you get us out of harm's way after I get them. So we waited for one pass of the boat. We made our move. I was able to 
get my hands on the victim's belt beneath the water and rotate him in the water to get his head above the water. And then I, 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 I sort of cradled him as, as we idled away from the unmanned dangerous boat. And uh, his name, I came to learn, is Norberto Martinez. Um, he was ejected by the boat and cut open by the propeller. Um, so his back was open like a baked potato. His eyes were lit up as if he had been electrocuted. His pupils were constricted. And I, I, I held him you know, in my lap while calling 911 um, to ask for the emergency rescue helicopter to please come. Um, what I learned is they don't just sell, send the helicopter when you ask. There's a, there's a whole protocol for that. And then what transpired you know, will sound funny now, and, and, and maybe it is. Um, but and it was funny then, but, but no less horrifying. So I managed to get Mr. Martinez into the boat on my lap. And I didn't remember my CPR from camp. Um, but I knew that if I tilted him on his side, that wasn't going to hurt him. So I tilted him on his side and the, and the water poured out of his head like, like a child's bath toy. If you ever, when, it's, when you're done with bath time and you take the toys out and you empty them out, that, that's how the, the water poured out of his head. I have him on my lap. I'm screaming for 911 on the phone. And Captain Koch looks at me and says, dude, he's, he's bleeding all over you. <laughs> And I said, yeah, James, I know that, but there's really nothing I could do about this. Um, and James said, yeah, it's pretty gross. I said, yeah, James, it's, it's pretty gross, but just get us get us to the shores as fast as you can. Um, so we, we raced back to the shore. Um, we The helicopter lands, fire rescue comes. They, they take a statement from us. Um, when it was happening, I was in a total state of calm. But when it was over, that's when the real torrent of adrenaline came through, um, thinking about what had happened and, and, and really thinking about whether he was alive or whether he was dead. Um, so we get back to Miami after the day, obviously didn't keep fishing. And I called Jackson Memorial Hospital and I asked whether um, this drowning victim survived. And they asked for his name. At the time, I didn't know his name. And I said, well, he was a male who I rescued in the waters of Key Largo. And the woman said, this is Jackson. We've had five drownings today. I need a name. Uh, long story short, through then Dean Goldschmidt, we were able to reconnect with the family. He made a total and complete recovery. He lived to see the birth of his granddaughter. And when people come to my office and they see all these fishing rods, they're his. Because as soon as he was able to walk, he said, I'm never fishing again. And I'm giving you all my rods. And I, and I have them in my office to this day. Well, so, you still stay in touch with him? I, I try to. Yeah. I mean, it's a that's a phenomenal story, which I didn't know, even though I know you well. Um, and it's going to be hard to talk about anything else that could come close to that. 
Uh, I think it reinforces maybe what we're here to do on this planet, which is care for one another. Um, and I think it was a heroic act of bravery um, and, you know, very uh, a kind of blessing for that individual in that water. So it's going to be hard for me to make a turn here, uh, Jeff, but I do think it, it attests to your character. Um, and I think character is everything in life. Um, and I think sometimes lawyers get a bad rap. Um, but I'm here to say I love all the lawyers in my life. Um, they worry about all the things I don't worry about. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to turn maybe to speak a little bit more uh, or, or squarely about your work, really, in regulation and design. Um, because as a respected lawyer in Miami, you have a great deal of experience and success in this arena. Jeff, regulatory frameworks such as zoning dictate much of what the built environment looks like, and yet they did not always exist in the United States. So let's start with the basics. What is zoning and how does it shape the built environment? Well, that was a great transition. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure, of course. Well, it, 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 it's hard to talk about zoning uh, without also talking about planning. And without also talking about property rights. So if if I may, in answer to your question, um, address some of these other issues, I, I like to refer to them as dance, dancer, and music, right? None exists without the other. So you really can't talk about zoning without talking about planning, and you can't talk about either of them in a meaningful way without talking about property rights. So let's see if we can dig into it that way with, with your permission. So I'll, I'll start with the first part of your question, what is zoning? Um, I'll give you my definition. Zoning is a regulatory means, a piece of legislation of managing change. Zoning laws typically are part of a set of regulations that seek to define how and where we build. Um, I'll, I'll brutalize this quote, but Bertolt Brecht once said, we talk about the violence of the river. We never talk about the violence of the banks that contain it. Um, so there's much discussion about, about development, very little discussion about that regulatory framework that, that channels it. So zoning um, exists as a function of the police power of the state the power to regulate what you do with your property comes from the same source as the power to tell you how fast you can drive your car. It, it, it's, it's a power that's exercised for the health, safety, and welfare of the citizenry. And not unlike the speed limit, it's designed to create predictability, safety, and avoid conflicts. Um, zoning itself grew out of the law of nuisance, which is a body of common law decisions where the courts would draw the line of demarcation between how you use your property and how your use affects me and my enjoyment of my property. So zoning originally began as a means you know, through our industrializing society of minimizing conflicts in uses by organizing communities into zones of consistent, compatible, and like uses and separating those uses from their worst possible adjacencies. And 
It, it's a relatively new construct. We'll get into the history of it a little bit. Um, but zoning laws are really one part of a much broader um, regulatory regime that one could call as growth management generally. Um, and they work hand in glove with comprehensive planning uh, to ensure that property owners are able to use their properties consistent with their rights, but also guarding against the impacts of that use on their neighbors. Hmm. I mean, your your answer makes me think about that kind of careful balance between you know pub, the public and the private, right? The private rights for the public good, right? So I imagine that um, we're always balancing these two worlds. Um, you know, Jeff, we're coming to the middle of the conversation. So I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break. But when we return, I'm going to continue my conversation with Jeff Bass as he shares not only a brief overview of the history of zoning, but also some of the most interesting zoning cases that he's worked on and what lessons we could draw from his experience for the shaping of our future cities. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with attorney Jeffrey Bass and the ways that we can navigate the ongoing debate between creativity and control in the design of the built environment. Jeff, right before the break, um, you gave us a short definition of uh, what zoning was. And could you expand on that by providing our listeners with a brief overview of the history of zoning? I'd be quite pleased to. Um, 
And I think we should come up with a better word for it than zoning. There can't be any like less sexy way. It's not very seductive. It's, no, sure. it's, a, it's a total turnoff. It's over. It's it's overbroad and overly narrow at the same time because it includes a lot that it shouldn't, and it doesn't include a lot that it should. So let's like for further thought, come up with with a better uh, a, a better title for this discipline. Um, but as I said before, zoning arises essentially from the law of nuisance, and it's a function of the police power of the state to protect us from each other and uh, ensure to the best of its ability uh, our future prosperity. Um, it's a, it, it, as a discipline, it, it was really born at the end of the 1800s, start of the 1900s, and there, there's some really interesting history here. So by, by, by most measures, our president, Herbert Hoover, um, could be considered the grandfather of zoning, um, because before he was president, um, he was the secretary of the Department of Commerce. And when he was the secretary of the Department of Commerce, um, in, in the 20s, we were undergoing tremendous growth pressure in this country compared to where we were. And so then Secretary of Commerce Hoover uh, created an advisory council to study this issue of zoning and create a blueprint for all of the states who didn't have zoning laws and even for those who did to make sure that they were lawful to follow um, when enacting and creating laws to govern the tremendous development that was taking place around this time. In the initial enabling legislation, uh, then Secretary Hoover, uh, he described why he was undertaking this exercise this way. These are his words. The lack of adequate open spaces, of playgrounds and parks, the congestion of the streets, the misery of tenement life and its repercussions upon each new generation are an untold charge against our American life. Our cities do not produce their full contribution to the sinews of American life and national character. The moral and social issues can only be solved by a new conception of city building. And it was that idea that gave then Secretary Hoover the momentum to create this advisory council, which then generated the first state enabling zoning legislation, which he disseminated across the country for each state to adopt as its own. In terms of chronology, when Secretary Hoover created this council in 1921 to study this issue, only 48 cities in America with less than 11 million inhabitants had zoning ordinances. By 1923, 218 municipalities governing 22 million inhabitants had adopted zoning. And as these jurisdictions were adopting zoning, property owners were testing these laws in courts try to vindicate their own private property and liberty interests against the ability of the state to contain them. So Secretary Hoover generated this state enabling legislation for adoption by the many states um, as a tested 
piece of legislation that responded to the decades prior of judicial challenges so that when the states went ahead to adopt zoning laws, they were adopting laws that already had survived constitutional challenge. Um, and so really, uh, by, uh, by the 20s, we had a standard act, and then that gave rise to a trickle-down effect uh, vertically and horizontally of, of, of cities and states creating laws to regulate growth. Um, it, again, in quoting then Secretary Hoover, these are his words, this legislation endeavors to provide, so far it is possible to foresee that proper zoning can be undertaken without injustice and without violating property rights. So they knew very well then what they were doing, that is striking that fine line balance between the collective good of all of us who live in these cities and the rights of private property owners to use their property. Um, which is part of our tradition as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that's a wonderful overview, um, especially from a kind of legislative standpoint, right? Which is oftentimes those invisible uh, regulatory frameworks that shape cities, right? And as an architect and as a designer, you oftentimes don't pay attention to them, but you really have to design within them. Right? You frequently, as architects and designers, completely ignore them. <laughs> Well, depends <laughs> on the architect, I guess. But um, but I, I guess having uh, provided that overview, um, I'd love to delve a little bit into some examples um, where, you know, because of your uh, active and demanding practice, you must see so many interesting matters um, on quest and 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 have to really uh, participate in fascinating zoning cases. So I'm curious, given your ho long history in this arena, what are some of the most interesting cases that you've had the opportunity to work on? Uh, as we do in my business, I'll I'll answer your question and rephrase it as well, uh, because there are a few examples that I'd like to share that I think might be of interest to your audience. Uh, that I didn't actually work on, but uh, they, they're born and bred in Miami, and I think the international stage would find them interesting. Uh, let me start with something that um, I'm extraordinarily proud of. Um, the University of Miami, where we sit today, uh, is located within the, the, the magical city of Coral Gables. Um, for, for many years, uh, the two had a strained relationship. Uh, the university uh, generates... A, a whole lot of good, uh, but it has a gravitational pull of its own inside and outside of the city. And the city of Coral Gables and the University of Miami tried for decades uh, to create a framework for the orderly growth of the university uh, and for its success. And uh, they had failed miserably for over 20 years. I, I was quite... Um, honored to have been asked by uh, then President Donna Shalala to, to try to work out a development agreement, which is a statutorily blessed, it, it emanates from legislation that allows effectively a developer and a host jurisdiction to enter into a, a, a constitution of their own, a contract, if you will, for how growth will be managed. And uh, I remember quite vividly, because he's, he's now one of my closest friends, President Shalala looked at me looked at Joe Natoli uh, and said, 
Joe, this is Jeff. He's your lawyer. Go figure this out. Um, and, and what we figured out was a uh, a 20 year agreement between Coral Gables uh, and the University of Miami that does wonderful things for both. It, it secured our ability to build 6.8 million square feet on our campus over the course of the 20 year term of the agreement without interference um, by the city. And at the same time, uh, created a series of community impact and community benefit programs run through the School of Music, through the School of Architecture, through our athletics department to really promote this connectivity between the city and the university. Um, and, and it's an incredible success. You know, President Shalala declared it to be one of one of her proudest moments. Uh, it, it was it was difficult, but it's a huge victory, something that that both institutions should be very, very proud of. Um, so that's one. Uh, because- and, and actually, I think the question of, you know, the relationship between cities and universities is not, of course, solely um, a, a point of contention in a place like Miami, uh, but certainly throughout the country, right? Universities tend to own a lot of land. They have a lot of individuals that reside within them, students, faculty, workers. And so I've been mean, trying to find that careful balance between, in, as you suggest, developing a parcel of land for greater density, which we certainly need in a place like Miami, because, you know, we know that we have a need for housing. We know we want to promote a vibrant community for our students. But at the same time, we have to we have to manage that delicate balance with a fabric, um, which is one of the most beautiful, certainly in South Florida, it's one of the first American garden cities. So, so I think the kinds of challenges that you may have been able to successfully mitigate are, are occurring throughout the country. They're, they're common. The friction points are very common. Yeah. They're, not, they're not new or novel uh, yeah. to us. We just found a great way to solve them. And I uh, mean, you, uh, you know, in, in reading and preparing for this, you've certainly represented universities, but you've also re- represented local governments and individuals. So you have a large breadth of scale uh, and of clients. So um, what what other insights can you share from some of, of your other cases? Well, sure. Um, there, there are two. These are This, this is where I, I wanted to deviate from the question slightly because sure. uh, these really resonate with uh, I, I think the the major theme that we want to explore, which is what is the role of government in regulating land? Like, what is the role of government in regulating land? And then how can we, the the great way, be advocates uh, for our communities in an effective way? And, and then more particularly, what is the role of the judicial branch in this dance, if you will? And there, there are two cases uh, that come from uh, our, our jurisdiction that I'd like to talk about um, without any moral judgment uh, about the result, but really to illustrate what the issues are. Uh, so there's a case called Coovin versus the city of Coral Gables. This is a case about a Ford F-150 pickup truck. <laughs> yes, you heard me correctly. Um, uh, Mr. Coovin owned a Ford F-150 pickup truck, which he parked in front of his house in the city of Coral Gables. I'd like to note, it was a personal pickup truck. It had no commercial markings on it whatsoever. He drove a pickup truck. Well, in the city of Coral Gables at the time, you were not allowed to park a pickup truck in front of your house between the hours 
of 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. You could have a pickup truck. You could drive a pickup truck, but you better park it in a garage. Mr. Kuvin did not have a garage. He was um, cited for violating the ordinance that prohibited trucks of this nature being parked in the front overnight during these hours. And, and ultimately, he sued, saying this regulation that prohibits pickup trucks is depriving me of my constitutional right to drive what I want to drive. I'm not hurting anybody. It's no different from any other personal vehicle that people are driving, except it happens to be a pickup truck. So um, Mr. Coven sued the city of Coral Gables, challenging this no pickup truck ordinance. Um, and the no pickup truck ordinance was upheld. It was upheld because the court said, look, zoning for aesthetic purposes to protect the character of a neighborhood is a legitimate exercise of the police power. Mr. Kuvin's not been singled out because of his race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or religion. And so we're looking at this legislation and we're not saying whether it's good or bad. We're saying, is it, is it fairly debatable that an ordinance like this could have the effect of promoting neighborhood character? And the court said, yes, it was. Uh, there was a case that came out of uh, Miami, um, Miami Shores, um, which I call the vegetable garden case. So in, 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 the, in the village of Miami Shores, you can grow fruits anywhere on your property. You can have garden gnomes and trolls and pink flamingos on your front yard. You can grow vegetables in your side yard and your backyard but you can't grow vegetables in your front yard under the landscape regulations of Miami Shores. And uh, a lovely married couple who'd been living there for years had a vegetable garden in their front yard. They were cited. They were brought in front of the code board. Uh, they were found to be in violation uh, and fined. They were given time to comply. Um, ultimately, they removed the garden, but they sued, saying, this ordinance that prohibits us from growing vegetables in our front yard, where we can grow them in our backyard, where we can grow them in the side yard, where we can grow any fruit we want in our front yard, where we can have a flower bed in our front yard, but stops us from having a vegetable garden, that's outrageous, that's unconstitutional. And the court said, no, it's not. It's legitimately related to the view of this municipality on the landscape aesthetics of the of those portions of private property most perceived from the public realm and again they're not singling you out because you're a member of a suspect class and it's not denying any fundamental constitutional right so not for the courts to say it's good or bad the courts say it's Fairly debatable, it's rationally related, and we're not getting in the middle of it. So th those are two very interesting examples about just how far government can go in telling you, private property owner, what you could do in your private, you know, with your private property and withstand a challenge. Um, so th those are two interesting cases. Um, I I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, in terms of regulatory regime, I do a lot of work in the historic preservation space. And on, on topic of, of, of the question, the, the city of Miami Beach, I think, is just a shining example of how, um, so these are historic preservation laws, which are 
a type of zoning law. They have their own discipline, but uh, they regulate land. So they're you know part of land development regulations generally, but they're more particularly tailored to matters of preservation. How um, a commitment to preservation and the adoption of laws with teeth about preservation can really uh, define the identity of a place and ensure its continued vitality. Um, I'll, I'll just, I know we're short for time, but a, a few things that I think the, the listeners might find interesting. Uh, so let me start with the, the cinematic classics of Scarface and Miami Vice, both of which came out around 1984. Scarface was 84. I think Miami Vice started in 84. And uh, Scarface, you know, preliminarily, but Miami Vice more particularly, uh, put our Art Deco architecture of Miami Beach on the national stage for the, for the very first time. Um, and that was really the first time that it happened. It, we, we first appeared in, in the mid 80s on, in television and media, but when people started to appreciate the, the, the gem, the architectural treasure that is Miami Beach, as we know, print soon followed thereafter. And we became the photo shoot, modeling shoot, uh, magazine shoot capital of the world. All people from all over the world came to Miami Beach to film against these beautiful backdrops. Um, that's really interesting because if you overlay that timeline with the legislative history of preservation on Miami Beach, um, you'll you'll see that our first local historic districts on Miami Beach were adopted in 1986. I mean, this is this is relatively recent history. The um, uh, the Ocean Drive Collins Avenue uh, local historic district and the Hispaniola Way local historic district, you know, they're of relatively recent vintage. That's uh, they, they were adopted in, in 86. Since that time, uh, Miami Beach has, has been a tremendous steward and leader and has gone on to um, create 14 separate local historic districts. Um, but it wasn't until the mid-90s that the ordinances got some real muscle and the Historic Preservation Board got jurisdiction, like real jurisdiction, uh, to withstand the pressures that came with this great success uh, to make sure that we did not come uh, become a victim of, of, our, of our own sudden celebrity and that we guarded, jealously guarded, those things that created this sort of rebirth um, and that we protected, defended them um, as, as one of our most precious resources. In fact, um, you know, and I want to thank Debbie Tackett, who is the preservation officer for Miami Beach, is an extraordinary public servant, extraordinary public servant and uh, committed preservationist. Um, the, the city created its first preservation board in 2000. So, 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 so think about how recent the, this, this is. Um, and, and now the city does struggle with its own success. You know, um, uh, I don't really want to dwell on it, but we, Miami Beach, South Beach in particular, and the area where our Art Deco buildings are on Ocean Drive, it has been in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons. And it's gonna, it's a, it's a very delicate, uh, tricky regulatory exercise to course correct on that, um, uh, and, and and that remains a work in progress. But those those are really, I think, good examples. And just on that point, for for the listeners out there. Um, who don't necessarily appreciate how young you know, Miami is and the ability for us to shape our cities. Um, since 1989, 
I, I came here in 1989. So since my arrival, the following cities have been created in, in Miami-Dade County. Key Biscayne was incorporated in 1991. I mean, this is recent stuff. Aventura, 95. Pinecrest, 96. Sunny Isles Beach, 97. Miami Lakes, 2000. Palmetto Bay, 2002. Miami Gardens, 2003. Doral, 2003. Cutler Bay, 2005. So I, I, I go back to where I started. I grew up in a place where I didn't think you could build anything. And I certainly never thought that there could possibly be born a new city, right? That that was not something within the conscious grasp of, of a New Yorker. Um, and, and to be in Miami and, and see this growth as we have and, and see these territories claiming their own identity through incorporation uh, has really been nothing short of remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you said a lot in that answer. And actually, um, I, I wanted to just highlight perhaps uh, for those that are not familiar with this story um, uh, and for our listeners, the incredible role that um, community advocates like Barbara Capitman played um, in shaping uh, the idea of a historic district. And she was remarkable insofar as she uh, wasn't concentrating on a single building, but she laid a district, the notion of a historic district. So really where the collective of, of buildings is more important than any one individual structure. And that's remarkable. And somehow women have always played a very strong role in preserving communities. You know, you mentioned Debbie, who's also contemporary woman that is um, really advocating for city, um, for Miami Beach. Um, but it also made me think that with this rise of all these new cities, um, I would hope that we are in a moment in our regulatory frameworks that are very, very different than the time in the post-war. So in post-war period where we had this kind of exodus from the cities and we created all of these suburbs under really laws, zoning laws that provided for mono-use suburbs, single-use suburbs, I would hope that these cities and the cities that are to come will move towards a more polycentric uh, city where each of these cities can afford a multiplicity of uses uh, for its citizens so that we can build more sustainably as we move forward. And then finally, when I listen to you, I, I think of all the individuals that play a role in shaping of cities and how we have to work together. And we can't really be in silos, you know, lawyers with architects, designers, community advocates, neighbors, really have to come together um, to play an active voice in the shaping of great cities. So, you know, thank you for that answer, um, Jeff. You know, we're coming, sorry, did you want to say something? I was just going to uh, embroider that last answer. We all have to come together and we all have to learn to speak the same language to understand each other in a non-threatening way that builds consensus and not contempt because a lot of these conflicts happen with people talking at right angles to each other, mm -hmm. which is anti-productive. Yeah, indeed. I think that's why you've been so successful at uh, reaching uh, consensus, you know, which is not a difficult thing, I mean, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, so we're coming to the last couple of minutes. Um, so, But I would like um, to at least give you a minute or so to talk about your advocacy um, for architects, uh, which is a course that you developed and that you teach um, to the University of Miami School of Architecture and the Masters of Real Estate program. And it's interesting because you don't teach this in the law school. So perhaps in about a minute or so, Jeff, um, could you uh, just tell us about this course and why you wanted to teach it? Sure. Uh, 
I, I'm in awe of architects. I'm in awe of architects. And I've had the great privilege to work with so many great ones. Um, they're incredible at what they do. But they're not taught. They're not taught how to read codes and to speak necessarily in an effective way as advocates to elected bodies of non-architects. They're fantastic at speaking to architectural juries, but, but sometimes speak to elected officials as if they were members of an architectural jury. And the members of these bodies have no idea what you mean when you talk about the rhythm of the fenestration or the design party. So I was trying to teach young architectural students how to read codes and to learn a new language for engaging in the non-architectural world. Yeah, it's a fabulous course. And, you know, I'm so happy that you're teaching it. Um, so I'm asking all my guests, and I'm going to give you one minute, Jeff. What's your favorite city and why? I thought long and hard about this answer because I didn't want to repeat all of the answers that your prior guests have repeated. Uh, my answer is Bozeman, Montana. Okay. You're going to have to tell me that in 30 seconds. Why do you love Bozeman, Montana? Bozeman is a beautiful, compact city that has the balance of power between urbanism and the wilds of nature in a place like no other. It has beautiful Victorian houses. It has a vibrant university. It has fantastic restaurants. It has all of that within walking distance. And I get tremendous energy from being able to be in a city and see the vast expanses of mountains and rivers and forests all around me at the same time. Wow. I That was an unexpected answer, but one that is going Gotta to keep you on your toes. I know. And one that's going to cause me to go to Montana. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your work, your meaningful work in the shaping of cities, the passion that you do it with and the integrity that you do it with. Um, I want to announce to all my guests that next week I will be joined by Helene Cartier, the Director of Urban Planning and Design at C40 Cities. So please look at all or listen to all our previous episodes on Spotify or iTunes, and I look forward to connecting with everyone next week. Thanks again, Jeff. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 